Good to see you this morning. My name's Carl. I'm one of the ministers here on staff at the Parkway Church. Welcome to Theological Equipping Class, which we are having uh, in this room today, which is abnormal. We normally have theological equipping down the hall in our chapel, but because we're having a picnic today uh, after service, we are, we've moved the class into here so we could uh, kind of repurpose that room for uh, tables and chairs. We have a place to sit and eat because the picnic, which was supposed to be outside, is now inside because we have Texas winter part three, which is weird, right? We usually have three or four summers. This year we got two or three winters. Whatever. Texas needs to make up its mind, right? Uh, So we have been talking about uh, ecclesiology, is uh, what we've been doing uh, in theological equipping for the past several weeks. Uh, And Zach introduced us to this uh, uh, two weeks ago, I think it was. Uh, Let me see if I can get this thing to work for me. Yes, I can. Super good. So we've been looking at ecclesiology. uh, And this morning in particular, we're going to be looking at the universal and the local church. Uh, and so before we get started, uh, because it's such a big room, we typically grab one of our elders and ask them to pray. But this morning, I'm just going to pray so we can all hear because we're in such a large room this morning. So let's pray and then we'll kind of jump into it. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you are good, that you love us, that you are for us and not against us because of the blood of your son and the power of your spirit to give us the gift of faith that we might be saved Uh, We bless your name. And so as we gather this morning and as we think about your word and as we kind of study together and think about your church, uh, we pray that you will be near to us, that our hearts would be open and ready to receive what you have to teach us through your word. Uh, Lord, help me to be faithful and to speak what is true this morning. And as we consider these things together, that we might be edified and encouraged and reminded that we have a good God who gives good gifts to his children. So we are grateful for the opportunity that we have to gather and pray that your name will be blessed and that your kingdom will grow as a result of, uh, of our faithfulness this morning. Uh, we're thankful to you for all that you've done for us in Christ, and it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Okay, so we're looking at the uh, universal church and the local church. Uh, and so this word, ecclesiology, really means the study of the church. It's, a, it's the study of the doctrine of the church. Uh, and it comes from a Greek word, ekklesia. Uh, which there, you, the first one there is the kind of the English transliteration of it. The second one is the actual Greek there. Uh, up in the corner of the screen, you'll see this phone number. That phone number is if you have questions while we do the teaching, you can uh, feel free to text those questions in. That number will be up there pretty much the whole time. I realize it's not the biggest thing in the whole wide world, but hopefully you can see it. Uh, so we're looking at the, the doctrine of the church, the uh, ecclesiology that the scriptures would teach. And a couple of weeks ago, Uh, Zach introduced us to this idea, and he kind of gave us about 14 different ways that the word church can be used, that the word church uh, can be utilized in kind of common language, uh, because uh, it's helpful for us to recognize there is no one definition of this word. It depends on the context, depends on what you're talking about. And if you get locked into one definition of this word in your mind, then it can become confusing as we kind of bounce around from idea to idea. And so I just want to remind us of a few of these things that Zach introduced to us a couple of weeks ago. Uh, The first one is the church universal, which is one of the things we'll be looking at this morning. The other is the church local. These are two ways the words church can be used, and they don't mean exactly the same thing. Uh, We'll look at both of these in greater detail, so I'm not going to explain them right this second. Uh, The other ones that he, some other ones that he mentioned are the church visible. Uh, the visible church is the people who come to a local church, right? Uh, they are the people that we see that come into the, into the place where the people gather and that they worship and they sit under the teaching of the Word and these kinds of things. 
but we call it visible because it's just the people that we see. We don't know the hearts of the people that come. We don't know if they are or are not believers. We just know that they are a part of the gathering, that they show up when the church gathers. The church invisible is the church that God knows, the church that God knows, which is exactly right. His roster is perfectly correct, and He knows who indeed He has elect and who He has redeemed. And so the church invisible is all of the elect, all of those who have come to faith in the past, present, and even the future uh, that God has chosen for salvation. That's the church invisible. And we call it invisible because we can't know uh, what God knows, which is who are all of the elect. Then the word church, church could be used uh, in, a, in a kind of co- uh, collective sense, right? So Paul could write a, tr- a letter to the church in Rome. But he's not writing to a particular local church. He's writing to all of the local churches who gather in that city. And so the word church can be used in kind of a a more plural sense in that sense. You could also use the word church or churches uh, to talk about a place where you might go get some sweet, delicious chicken tenders. Right? Everybody ever been to Church's Chicken? Nope. Just me. Okay. So Church's is a chicken place. It's not great. We have Chick-fil-A, and so we skip over that in Texas, but that's fine. Uh, So we are looking at the universal church and the local church this morning, and we're going to kind of use the rubric of who, what, where, when, and why to consider these two ideas, the universal church and the local church. So let's begin with the universal church. The universal church, who is it and what is it? We're going to take the the who and the what, and we're going to kind of smoosh them together uh, because the church is not a thing. The church is a people. And so if you ask who the church is and if you ask what the church is, you're asking the same question. So we're going to kind of smoosh. Uh, who and what together. So who and what is the universal church? The universal church is the entire number of the elect for all places at all times. Uh, This is the idea that every person who's ever been chosen by God, everyone who's ever been redeemed and rescued uh, by uh, having received the gift of faith is a part of the church universal. And it really is kind of a mashup of two other church terms that I didn't list a moment ago. One is the church militant and one is the church triumphant. Uh, the church militant is the, the believers who are still in the world, still on the earth, who are making war against sin, who are fighting against uh, kind of the, the dark forces of the enemy on the earth. Uh, and so it's militant in that sense. It's not militant in some sort of weird jihad kind of sense. It's militancy against sin and against the darkness of the world. And then you have the church triumphant, which is all of the believers who have lived a life who have persevered and been faithful and have now died and are now with the Lord and awaiting resurrection. Those people are called the, tr- the church triumphant or the triumphant church because they have triumphed. They have run the race, they've been faithful, uh, and they've made it. They win. And so now they're just awaiting uh, resurrection so they can be reunited with their glorified bodies. And so this includes, when we think about the church universal, it's, we oftentimes will use the word church and think only in terms of New Testament. We'll only think past Jesus. Everybody that comes after Jesus is a part of the church. But the church universal includes those who put their hope and trust in God in the past. So Old Testament people who, who uh, were given this gift of faith, like Abraham, who uh, the Scriptures are clear, he trusted God. He had faith that God's promises were true. And so God counted that faith to him as righteousness. And so even Old Testament uh, people who were uh, putting their hope and faith in God, trusting in this future promise of a Messiah, are included in the universal church. This is not just uh, New Testament believers, people after Jesus. And so the universal church is the church from God's perspective. I mentioned this before. He is completely right and knows exactly who is part of this church. We have another word that we will use when we think of the church universal, and that is the word Catholic. 
right? This word Catholic, which means universal. We tend to think of the word Catholic as meaning Roman Catholic. So we hear Catholic and then we think, ooh, I don't really want to be a part of a Catholic church because I'm not sure if I agree with everything they believe. I think they, they are off on some things. And so I kind of feel squeamish about using that word. But that word just means universal. There was at one time only one church and that church was a Catholic church. And when we read the creeds, like the Nicene Creed and some others, and we see phrases in those creeds that say things like, we believe in one holy apostolic Catholic church, that Catholic is not a reference to Roman Catholicism. It's a reference to universal. It's a, uni- a reference to all believers for all times and all places being a part of the same church. Now, the, this word universal church uh, should not be confused with universalism, which is a completely different thing. It's a false teaching, a false doctrine that claims everybody, regardless of faith, regardless of life, regardless of uh, God's will, everybody is going to end up with God. Everybody's going to get saved. Everybody's going to heaven. That's what, the, that's what universalism holds, which is false. It's a false teaching, uh, and we should not agree with it, and we should not hold it. Uh, the only thing it has in common with the universal church is that it has the same root word of universal, right? So universalism, bad. Universal church, great, okay? Uh, so we should not confuse those two terms. Now, let's look at the local church. Who and what is the local church. The local church is a portion of the elect who regularly gather together in a specific location. So the local church is kind of made, made distinct by geography. They're made distinct by where they gather. It's a, it's a group of people living in a, in, a, in a kind of close proximity that get together for the purposes of worship, for sitting under the teaching of the Word, for taking communion together, doing all of that under the authority of elders. That's a local church. The Parkway Church, who we are, we are a local church. We are a group of people in the McKinney area who gather here on this piece of land in these buildings on a regular basis. Uh, We are a local church. Uh, So to be more specific, a local church is a group of baptized believers in Christ in a particular location at a particular time under the authority and leadership of duly appointed elders for the purposes of worship, preaching of the word, and the practicing of communion. So this would kind of be the difference, the idea of the difference between the local church and the universal church. It kind of be like the difference between the United States and an individual state, right? The United States is this conglomeration of all of these states together. They have an authority. They have a purpose. They have a direction. But then you also have individual states who fulfill part of the role of the, of the whole, but they also have their own thing that they've got to do. They've got their own direction that they're going that is consistent with and in, in, in somehow in step with the whole, right? So it's a similar idea. So this would be like the difference between Rhode Island and all of the United States, or Tennessee and all of the United States. But you can't use Texas in this analogy because Texas is the promised land. That's get really confusing. So we can't use Texas. But any other state you can use uh, in this analogy. Or this might be like an orchestra where you have a bunch of musicians all together playing individual instruments, playing individual parts that fit together for the good of the whole, so you have great music being played, right? So you have uh, an entire orchestra versus one, uh, let's say, French horn player, right? Who's playing one individual part, and their part matters in the whole, but it isn't the whole by itself, right? Uh, And so in the same way, you can't use every instrument, like a saxophone. A saxophone's not a real instrument. You can't do that. Okay, that's the who and the what. That was for the snows. I don't know if Ken Snow is in here. He's a good friend of mine, and he plays saxophone, but I hadn't seen him this morning. He missed my great joke. Okay, let's talk about the where. Where should the universal church meet? The universal church will meet in the new heavens and the new earth. 
That's where they will gather, right? And we'll talk more about this gathering idea when we get to the when. Uh, but that's it. The universal church will meet together, will assemble, they will gather in the new heavens and the new earth. The local church will gather where? Anywhere that they can. Parkway, the Parkway Church meets here. We meet here because uh, the church as an entity owns this land and has built these buildings, and here we are, and we gather because it's comfortable and it works, and we have seats and a microphone and all these great things that help. But at the end of the day, the where is almost inconsequential. It almost doesn't matter where we meet. It Rather, it matters that we meet. So if the elders were to decide that for financial purposes we were to sell the land and sell the buildings and buy a tent, and we began to meet in a tent in a field three miles from here, we would still be a local church. There would be nothing different about our faithfulness to gather if we were to gather somewhere different than this. So the location itself isn't all that important. It is the fact that we gather that's important. There ought to be a physical gathering of God's people. Uh, so uh, we've talked about this before, right? The church is not a building. The church is a people, right? So you guys remember this one, the here's the church, here's the steeple, open it up, and there's the wrong. There's the church, right? There's the church. So it really ought to be, here's the church. It's not just people. It is, it is a group of people. It's not just a building that happens to have a steeple. That's what the rhyme should be, but it isn't. The idea then is that the, the, the church is not a building, but a people. But here's, the, here's what's distinctive and important. There must be a location. What location it is is not important, but there must be one. What this means is you are not going to church if you're on an online church. If you're at home listening to a podcast, that's not a substitute for gathering. Now, if you are sick and you're trying to catch up on the podcast, there's nothing wrong with that. If you're getting older or infirmed or incapacitated in some way and you can't physically make it to the church, there's grace for that. But the idea is you, we cannot substitute some sort of pretend gathering for what is a real gathering. Because that's what the word church means. It means to assemble and it means to gather. And that's not pretend. That must be real. So there must be a physical, genuine gathering of God's people for there to be a local church. But again, it doesn't matter where. It just matters if. Okay? So that's the who, the what, and the where. Now let's look at the when. The universal church. When should the universal church be gathering? The universal church exists throughout time. So the universal church has existed since God created man and since there were men who loved and trusted in his promise, then the universal church has existed. But it will not gather corporately. The entire universal church will not gather together in one place at one time until after the resurrection, after final judgment. When the dead have been raised and the final judgment has come, then will all the saints be gathered to worship Christ the King for eternity. So that's the when for the universal church. When for the local church, the local church is indeed charged with gathering, but there is no specific command in the scriptures about how frequently they should be gathering. So in the Bible, there are indicatives, meaning there are indications of what a regular gathering would look like, but there is no imperative. There is no place where the scriptures say, you should meet every seven days or something like this. Christianity is birthed out of Judaism and Judaism has a well-established rhythm of life that is a weekly rhythm, and that rhythm is kind of centered around Sabbath, Sabbath being the last day of the week, and it's a day of rest, and it's a day of rest because God rested when He created. So God created for six days, and He rested on the seventh. He commanded His people to observe the Sabbath because rest is a valuable and important thing, and God wants us to see it and follow it. But Sabbath has been fulfilled in Christ, and so Christianity is birthed out of 
Judaism, which has this weekly rhythm centered around Sabbath, but Sabbath is no longer a command or a charge for the Christian church because the Sabbath has been fulfilled in Christ, as has all of the Mosaic law. So when we look in the Scriptures, we see some indications of what the Christian church ought to look like in terms of gathering. So in Acts chapter 5, verse 42, uh, there's an indication that they were meeting every day. It says, and every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus. So there's some sense in which in the beginning, when the church was first established, that they were indeed gathering every single day. Uh, and there is something to be said for us being together with other believers and that we would be uh, people who kind of are iron sharpening iron all the time. Uh, but there are other indications that seem, to indi- that seem to point to a weekly gathering. And so when we look in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, uh, verses 1 and 2 reads like this, Now, concerning the collection for the saints. And we talked about the collection. He's talking about this, this early church uh, idea where everyone was bringing goods and, and uh, money and valuables and kind of bringing them to the apostles and laying them at their feet and letting those things be distributed as everyone had need so that everyone in the church was cared for and provided for. And so Paul's writing to this church in Corinth, and he's saying, Now, concerning this collection for the saints, As I directed the church of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And so what he's talking about, he's he's making the point uh, that you ought to be gathering once a week, and you ought to be taking up this collection every week. And I want you to do that in a rhythm that allows for us to, when I get there, to be able to sit together and to, to study God's Word together. Don't let this be a hindrance. Don't let this be the only reason why you would get together. Then again, in Acts chapter 20, we find in verse 7, it says, On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. And so there's this, there's this clear indication that they were gathering once a week, and they were gathering on the first day of the week, which at that time would be Sunday. The last day of the week was Saturday. And now they're meeting on the first day of the week, which is Sunday. And that's when the Christian church has historically met. They've historically met on a Sunday, which is the first day of the week, uh, primarily because this is the day that Jesus rose from the grave. His work was done, and now there is rest. Right? So Jesus is on the cross, and he's dying, and he says, it is finished. His work is done. And now he is resurrected, and he says, it's time to rest. And so there is, this, there is this grace that's given to God's people in the gathering of the church that is a restful thing. We'll talk more about that in a minute. So those are the indications, some of the indications that you can find in the text about when should the local church be gathering. There is an imperative that's given, but it isn't about the frequency. It's merely about gathering. So in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25, it reads, Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more, as you see the day drawing near. And so the command is, do not neglect to meet together. So you should be getting together. Don't forsake it. Don't neglect it. Be faithful to gather. Now, a couple of points to make here. First is, we mentioned this briefly, the weekly rhythm of God's people has historically been around rest. That was true for the Jews. That was true for the Israelites. It's true for Christians. Jesus has come to give us rest and for us to gather and to study His Word, for us to gather and to worship His name, for us to take communion together, for us to be together, is to be a restful thing. Sunday should be a day of rest 
that the idea being that when we come together like this, when we gather to worship, when we gather to study the Word, we are experiencing this means of grace that's been given to us by God that we might find rest, both physical and spiritual. And for us to forsake this gathering would be to forsake the very rest that God provides, which is ironic, because what is the primary excuse that we would use to not go to church on Sunday? I'm tired. had a busy day. had a long week. I'm worn out. And so we're saying, I see how God has given me this means of grace by which I can rest, and yet I will say, I am too tired to rest. So, Matthew eleven twenty eight, Jesus extends this invitation to us and says, the solution to your weariness, the solution to your fatigue, the solution to you feeling burdened and worn out is me. Matthew eleven twenty eight. he says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. To meet with him, to be with his people, to study his word, to be in God's presence with the saints is to be restful. So, let's keep going. Let's look at the why. What is the purpose? What is the purpose of the church? What is the purpose of the church universal? What is the purpose of the church local? Let's start with the universal church. The universal church essentially has two purposes. The first is to worship and to give glory to God. Revelation 5, verse 13 says, And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. So there's this idea that once Jesus returns, once judgment has taken place, once all believers have been reunited with uh, their, their glorified bodies, that the saints will gather together in the new heavens and new earth, and they will worship God and celebrate Christ as King for all eternity. And that's part of their purpose. That is part of the purpose of the church. And the other is to reign with Christ over the nations. Revelation 5 verses 9 and 10 reads, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. So there's a sense in which that not only are the saints, the church universal, to gather and to worship and glorify God for all eternity, but they are also to reign with Christ over the nation. Somehow, in some sense, we're going to have some level of responsibility and authority over the nations alongside our King. So those are the purposes, the why behind the universal church. Now let's think about the local church. I want to split uh, this one into kind of two categories, uh, just for the purposes of kind of organizing our thoughts. So what is the purpose of the local church? Well, the why of the local church? Let's answer two different versions of that question. What is the purpose of its existence as an institution? And then let's look at what is the purpose of its gathering? So first, let's look at the purpose of the local church as an institution. There's a great quote from Jonathan Lehman. Uh, it's in, it should be in your notes. It reads, It is the institution, the local church, it is the institution that Jesus created and authorized to pronounce the gospel of the kingdom, to affirm gospel professors, to oversee their discipleship, and to expose impostors. So he lists off four purposes here, and I think these are the right ones. Uh, and we'll look at each of them just briefly. The first, to pronounce the gospel of the kingdom. This is faithful teaching of sound doctrine. This is what we do on a weekly basis here at Parkway. We do that both here in theological equipping 
and we do it during our worship service where we try to equip the saints for the work of ministry by being faithful to pronounce the gospel of the kingdom by the preaching of the word and by the teaching of what the scriptures hold. The second is to affirm gospel professors. That does not mean we're bringing in professors from local colleges or some like grabbing people from a seminary and saying, we affirm him as a gospel professor, but rather we affirm people who are professing the gospel. The idea that if someone comes and says, I believe that Jesus is Lord, I believe that he has paid for my sin, uh, that he has risen from the grave, and that I have been redeemed by his blood, and that the Spirit of God has given me faith. Then our job as a church is to affirm that and to baptize them and to welcome them into the uh, membership of the local church. And remember, the local church is seen from our perspective. It's the visible church. We can get it wrong. We might affirm someone as a believer uh, and a member of the Parkway Church, but it turns out, uh, because of unrepentant sin, that they were not a believer at all. They were just pretending. They just learned how to talk the talk, and it turns out that we affirmed someone as a believer who wasn't. And on the flip side, we might then take someone who's walking in unrepentant sin, be faithful to engage them with the truth of the Scriptures, and walk through the process of Matthew 18 and put them through church discipline, which, if they continue in unrepentance, would ultimately end in their excommunication from the church. But then to find out a few years later, they genuinely persevered. They genuinely were elect, and they repent and are restored, and we celebrate. And so we can get that wrong. We can get uh, the local church wrong. But God knows who the universal church is, and he does not get it wrong. So the next one is that the church is to oversee discipleship. This one is huge. This is the training and equipping of the people so that they would walk in faithfulness to all that the Scriptures teach and command, so that the church would correctly understand who God is and who they are, which would lead them to love God more rightly, which would cause them to love one another more correctly, and then that they would engage with the lost world with grace and faithfulness. This is something we attempted to do as faithfully as we know how at Parkway through the, the teaching that we provide here in Theological Equipping and the preaching uh, through the books of the Bible that we do during our worship services. So this idea that we should oversee discipleship, we should be making disciples of one another. This is not a one-way street where the elders come and try to teach you stuff and you just show up and listen. This is a mutual effort. We should be making disciples of one another. And then lastly, uh, the last point here is to expose imposters. We are to identify and to get rid of wolves and false teachers. Someone comes in here and tries to divide the church by teaching false doctrine and leading people astray. Those people should be identified and removed for the good of the church. The church should exercise discipline and walk people through that process that is no fun, but is faithful and needed that we might remove those who would profess faith but not walk in repentance, that the, that the Lord might be gracious and give them the gift of repentance and that we might celebrate them uh, in, in either receiving the gift of faith for the first time or demonstrating that they have indeed persevered. So we tend to see all of these things. We tend to see this exposing of imposters, overseeing discipleship, teaching the Word. We tend to see these things as something that's the job of the elders. That, that's the job of the staff. We tend to think that this is not something we do. Our job is to show up, take notes, take communion, and go home. But the reality is, is that by having a body of believers that genuinely knows what they believe, having a congregation who is thinking correctly about the doctrine of the Scriptures, who is thinking correctly about who God is and who they are, is more faithful 
A false teacher is going to be more readily exposed by a church that is steeped in the Word of God. Affirming someone as a believer when they're not is going to be less likely if the church is collectively holding to truth. Church discipline is going to be more faithful if the members of that church confidently engage that unrepentant sinner with God's Word instead of just feelings and thoughts. The body of a local church is going to be better equipped to make disciples of one another and to engage the lost with the gospel if their community, if their community that they're in is well-trained in sound doctrine. These things are important, and we, we, we have used this uh, mnemonic device of head, heart, hands, habitat a few times. I think it's valuable to reconsider that again, the idea that we must think right things about God. We must understand the truth of who He is and what He's done from the Scriptures, that that truth might then come into our hearts, that we might believe it, and that we might then love the one who gave it to us, and that that might then affect my hands, the ways that I interact with you as fellow believers, and the ways then that I interact with the lost world. So it comes from my head to my heart to my hands and into my habitat which is why we spend so much time focusing on theology. We want you thinking right thoughts about God so that you might love the right God and that you might respond to that love that He's given to you with love for Him and love for others. Head, heart, hands, and habitat. So that's the purpose for the existence of the local church as an institution. Now, let's look at the purpose for the gathering. I've already mentioned this list a couple of times. Uh, but I'll kind of walk through it quickly again. The purpose for the gathering of the local church is for worship, right? God commands that we worship Him. He commands that we sing songs of praise to Him, and so much of our worship is done through song. We also worship Him through the preaching of the Word, sitting under the teaching of the Scriptures, which is something we do on a weekly basis. And then we are to gather for communion. We are to, get, we are to commune together uh, for the purposes of unity and, that, uh, and for being obedient. Christ has commanded, do this in remembrance of me until I return. And so we should do those things under the authority of duly appointed elders. So we worship, we preach the Word of God, we take communion together, and we do that under the authority of elders. Uh, there are more things that we do, but that is the essence, that is the foundation of the purpose and the why behind the local church gathering. Okay, so next I want us to look at uh, just a couple of slides that I've made, a little illustration that I think can be helpful for us in thinking about uh, the universal church and the local church. First one is this circle. The circle, this circle represents the universal church. So everybody who's ever been saved, past, present, and future, all times, all places, is inside that circle, okay? That's the universal church. Within the universal church, you have local churches, right? These these smaller things, they can be different sizes, different shapes, different locations. Uh, I don't know if you can read this. Let's pretend like there's a circle. <laughs> that is hilarious. I can see it up there. I can see it right here. I cannot see it right there. I, you get it. There's a big circle, okay? That's so funny. I saw a couple of y'all grinning. I was like, what are they grinning at? Uh, so great, okay? So you have local churches inside the big imaginary circle, Right? And they're, they're different sizes, they're different shapes, they're different colors, and so on. But the idea is all local churches, if indeed we're excluding those who are not actually believers, we're talking about those who are genuine believers within a local church, they are all within the universal church. And you keep having more and more churches, right? And once you get enough local churches, what's really cool is you end up with a delicious cookie. That's not true. Okay. 
Uh, Tim mentioned that this illustration looked like a cookie, so I thought I would embrace that. Uh, for those of you listening to the podcast, I just put a picture of a cookie on the screen, and it's a ridiculous joke. But anyway, so this idea is that local churches are somehow a subset of the universal church. They are somehow a, a microcosm, if you will, of the universal church. They are not exact replicas of the universal church. They aren't like miniature universal churches, but they are somehow a subset and a microcosm of it, right? But even though that's true, uh, this would be kind of like the idea that, uh, that all fathers are men, but not all men are fathers, right? Or, or that all currency, uh, or uh, rather I'm getting that backwards, all dollar bills are currency, but not all currency are dollar bills, right? Or all terrorists have beards, but not all men who have beards are terrorists. Am I right? Check with Jeff and Zach and Tim on that. Uh, but the idea is that there are, uh, there are characteristics, attributes of the universal church that are not true of the local church. There are things about the local church that are not true of the universal church. And I want us to point some of those things out lest we get confused about how this kind of subset or microcosm thing works. So in the uh, local church, you have indeed a process for membership. To be a part of a local church requires that you become a member of that church as a believer, and there's a process in every church. Every church has a process. Some processes are very, very simple. They just involve walking to the front, shaking the pastor's hand, boom, you're a member. Or sending an email or a letter to the secretary of the church, and then they send a letter to your previous church, and then that church sends a letter back to this church, and now you're a member of this church. And the Parkway Church, our process is go to a class, have a meeting with one of us, give us your testimony, let us meet with you and visit about that. Like, there is a process for membership. In the universal church, there's not a process. In the universal church, you become a member of the universal church the instant that you're justified. When God looks at you and counts you righteous because of Christ, you immediately become a part of the universal church. There's no process of membership. There are elders in the local church, as there should be. There should be men who have been, uh, have been vetted and are proven to be uh, in line with the description of what an elder should be, found in First Timothy and Titus. And those men are called to lead and shepherd and pray for the local church. That is not any longer necessary in the universal church. We will have our shepherd. Uh, we will have Christ who will be here with us to shepherd us and care for us. Uh, there is uh, no church discipline in the universal church, but there is in the local church. Because when we get to the universal church gathering, when Christ has returned, when the judgment has come, there will be no more sin. So there will be no need for church discipline, but there is a need for church discipline until he returns. Baptism. We need baptism in the local church. We need people to walk in obedience to what Christ has commanded as they come to faith. But once the universal church gathers, once the, uh, once the uh, resurrection has come, there will be no more new believers. All of the saints will have gathered. The universal church will have gathered to praise and worship God, and there won't be a need for additional baptisms. There's a need for diversity in the universal church. The scriptures are clear that every tribe, tongue, nation, and language will be present in the universal church when it gathers. That, that, that was what the, the universal church will be made up of. That is not necessarily true for the local church. A church in China is going to have almost exclusively Chinese people, probably speaking mostly Mandarin. A church in Guatemala is going to be primarily Hispanic people, mostly speaking Spanish. A church in Germany is mostly going to be Germans speaking German. So in general, a local church should kind of look like the context in which it finds itself. 
in general, right? There can be exceptions. You might have a, a country that is war-torn, and you have two ethnic groups, one that was a, a vast majority and one's the tiny minority, and somehow the gospel is spreading in the minority, and so this local church has mostly this minority group. Well, that's not unfaithful, even though they don't have a representation of the whole country, right? So the idea is that in general, a local church should look like its surrounding demographic, but the bottom line is uh, the idea is that it's not unfaithful to have a particular demographic in a church. What is unfaithful is for a church to intentionally skip over one person or some people in order to get to others so that they might artificially skew their demographic. That They might intentionally try to misrepresent what, uh, what the church should be in order to look a certain way. If I'm to skip over one person of one ethnicity for a person of another ethnicity because I want to have that person in my church so that I look good, that is unfaithful. And so it's not unfaithful to have a particular demographic in a church. It's unfaithful to skip over people to artificially skew your numbers. Okay, last thing I've got for you. A little chart. It's in the back of your uh, deal there. I'm going to put it up on the screen as well. I don't know how that's going to look. Almost unreadable. Okay, so let's look, at your, let's look at your notes. This is just a chart that kind of reviews all that we've looked at this morning. So the universal church is all of the elect in all places at all times, and they are going to meet in the new heavens and the new earth, and they'll do that as a gathering after the resurrection and after the final judgment, and they will do so in order to worship and to glorify God and to reign with Christ. The local church is a portion of the elect that gather in a particular place at a particular time, and they should gather at any physical location that they choose, provided that they do indeed actually gather. They'll do, they should do that regularly. Traditionally, the Christian church has met weekly and on Sunday. They should do that for the pur- they should gather for the purposes of preaching the word, worshiping, partaking in communion, and doing that under the authority of elders. And they should exist in order to pronounce the gospel of the kingdom to affirm believers, uh, to uh, oversee discipleship, and to expose imposters. Okay, that is it for this morning. It's a quick lesson this morning. I'm going to bring old Zachary T. Lee up here. We're going to do a little Q&A. And I'm going to put this number back up here for you in case you've got anything now. You're free to text those in. I'm going to stand here awkwardly and pretend like we're not done until Zach gets up here. The building is larger than the building we normally do it in, and he didn't time out his walk. Here he is. Nice. Welcome. Hey, man. How you doing? Good. This is kind of weird. Okay, so first of all, thank you everybody for coming in here. We will normally have theological equipping in our chapel. We just had to make some adjustments for our picnic today, which uh, we also had to make adjustments for because it's cold outside. So there's been a lot of adjusting uh, this morning. So we're going to do some Q&A. You guys have sent in a few questions, but feel free to send in a few more since we ended a little early. We have a little more time for questions. Tim, if you can just text those to me as you get some. So the first one is, I'll, I'll, I'll take kind of a stab at that, and then I'll, I'll kick it to you. <clears throat> Can you clarify more about diversity within the local church? And so I'll give a few thoughts on this. So I think what, uh, what uh, Carl is mentioning is, when Revelation says that around the throne there'll be people of every tongue, tribe, people, and nation, it's talking about the universal church, right? It's not that a local church has every tongue, right? How many languages do we speak in this room total? Typically, we speak English. Maybe some of you speak Spanish. Maybe some of you speak French. Maybe some of you speak a few other things. German. Tim speaks German. Uh, he kind of looks that way, too. And so we have a few other languages, but we don't have every tongue in here, right? 
uh, we have different ethnicities. We have African-American, we have Hispanic, we have Indian, we have a few different things, but we don't have every ethnicity. Raise your hand in here if you are from, oh, I don't know, uh, Djibouti. Anybody? No? Okay, so notice that there are things that are true of the universal church that won't be the case of every local church. Now, let me be very clear. Diversity in the local church is good. One of the ways that we speak against racism uh, to, the, to the world is that in Christ, we have this unity that they don't have. So our culture fights each other over white and black. Our culture fights each other over men and women. Our culture fights each other over, uh, you know, rich and poor and these kind of things. One of the things that's cool in the church is that we have people of different races. We have both genders. We have rich people and poor people and educated and uneducated. What, what Carl was mentioning, which I thought was good, is uh, what, what's negative is when you're trying to exclude people from your church, okay? Who should you minister to? Whoever God brings to you, whoever's in your neighborhood, okay? Go next door and share the gospel with your neighbor, regardless of what race they are, regardless of what gender they are, regardless of how much money they have. We're not to exclude or skip over people. So what the local church can't do is what was done a lot of times, uh, you know, in the 1960s in the South, where we would say, we will not have this kind of person in our church. That's evil. Paul says in Galatians, when the Jews are trying to withdraw from the Gentiles and make this ethnic distinction with the gospel, that they've forgotten the gospel and stand condemned. So it's kind of a big deal. So that's the idea. So it's good to have diversity in the local church. I think one of the things that Carl was mentioning is what some churches do is they just will try to get diversity for diversity's sake, not for the sake of discipleship, so that they can pat themselves on the back and say, look how progressive we are. I think that's what he was trying to, to push back on that. So anything you want to no, add great. to that? Okay. I just got another text. When did the local church begin? Uh, the same time the universal church did. So as soon as you have people that worship Christ, you have, or even people that worship Christ unknowingly in the Old Testament, you then have a, a local church, right? So though there's a, the universal church and the local church have coexisted, if you want to say it that way, uh, the universal church is people that know God, and any time that they have gathered or assembled, that would be the first, uh, first local church. Did you want to add any comments on that one? Yeah, I think just uh, the only thing I would add is just that the, the attributes or the characteristics that I listed for the local church uh, primarily focus on uh, what we are to be as a Christian church post-Christ, right? The idea that, uh, that indeed the local church somehow existed at the beginning, uh, and the same time the universal church existed, the same uh, kind of requirements in terms of sitting under elder authority, uh, worship, these kinds of things weren't explicitly given in the Scriptures at that time. All right, you guys, just keep them coming in. There's a few more I've got. Some are spicy. Some, uh, some are not as spicy. Okay, because denominations can create disunity, how can a local church show unity with the universal church? Or how can a local church show unity with other local churches? I'll give some thoughts, and then I'll, I'll kick it to you. So, okay, <clears throat> here's what's difficult. Once upon a time, you just had one church, okay, right? You just had the Catholic church, meaning, in a sense, small c, universal, but eventually also meaning Roman Catholic. That's all you had up until 1054. So you either were Christian slash Catholic or you were not a Christian. Those were your only options. The first big split in church history happens in 1054 with what's known as the Great Schism, which separates Roman Catholicism from Eastern Orthodoxy. We'll talk more about those things later on. Uh, and then again in the Reformation, which began in 1517, you then got the Protestant church. So there are three main branches of historic Orthodox Christianity, Roman Catholicism, 
Eastern Orthodoxy, also called Greek Orthodoxy, and Protestantism, okay? Now, the benefit of Protestantism is it said that the Bible and the Bible alone will be the ultimate authority in the Christian life. So in Roman Catholicism, it's the Bible plus the official teachings and canons and doctrines of the Roman Catholic Church. What the Reformers said is, no, the, the, the standard that has to stand above all of that is the Bible. So the benefit is, is that, you know, by having the freedom to interpret the Bible on our own, we now avoid the failures that happen when something becomes corrupt and it corrupts the entire institution, okay? The downside of that is now you get a bajillion denominations, right? Drive down the street and you will find Baptist, Methodist, Presbyterian, non-denominational, Assemblies of God, Pentecostal, uh, Anglican, Episcopalian, which are the same thing, but they call themselves different things on how attached they are to England, all these other kinds of things. We'll have a whole lesson on denominations. So in one sense, the Reformation is a failure. You get a divided church. But here's what's important. The Reformers say, and this, is, this needs to be really clear, the Reformers say, we are not starting a new church. There's no such thing as a new church. Jesus says the gates of Hades will not overcome his church. New Christianities are just recycled heresies. So it's important to remember that uh, as Christians, we all go back. If you're a true biblical Orthodox Christian, we all go back to the roots of the early church. We all go back to the first four church councils. We all go back to uh, Orthodox Trinitarianism. We all go back to being anti-Pelagian, meaning that we believe that you're saved by grace alone. Even Catholics believe that. They don't believe it's by faith alone, but they believe it's by grace alone. And so a few ways that we can work with other denominations. Sorry, this is a long, uh, you're doing long great. answer. So <clears throat> let, me, let me tell you what I think the best thing to do is. You need to think of churches' cooperation with other churches as these concentric circles, okay? So for Parkway, if we're going to plant a church, that's very similar to us. They're going to be making disciples. They're going to be teaching doctrine. So if we plant a church, they need to be very similar to us in doctrine, okay? If we're going to give money to a church, that's a little more removed from us. So we still want them to be orthodox. We still want them to love the gospel, but they don't have to be as aligned with us if we're just giving money, okay? I will get involved with those who are Roman Catholic on the pro-life issue, okay? That's a kind of a bigger circle. And then I will dig a well, you know, in uh, South America with an atheist. And so there are these different kind of concentric circles that you have of who you will and won't work with. And it all depends on what you're doing. If you're directly teaching doctrine, they need to be very similar to you. If you're involved in social work, though, they don't have to be as uh, like you doctrinally. And so traditionally what we've done at Parkway is we have had kind of informal partnerships with whether it was with the Southern Baptist Convention or whether it was with other churches or whether it was encouraging or uh, meeting with other pastors. One of the things that we do once a month is our pastoral staff gets together with pastors of other like-minded churches and we talk theology once a month. And so I think the way to do it is to find ways to, to, to help other churches without necessarily creating a new denomination. I think there should be more cooperations and less denominations. We'll get into more. We have a whole lesson on denominations that Dr. Steve's going to do at the uh, end of the semester. So I turned to you like I was waiting for the next question, which I have in my pocket. Somebody said this. If there are only believers on the new earth, the new heavens and new earth, and all will reign with Christ, who will there be to reign? Meaning to, to reign over. Let me just clarify this question real quick. When the Bible talks about us reigning with Christ, the idea is that we're simply doing what God had created Adam to do. Okay, so when God creates mankind, he makes mankind in his image. That does not mean we look like God. God is Trinitarian and infinite. He does not have a body. He does not look like a big human with a long beard in the sky. When it says that we're made in God's image, the idea is that God has made us unique. He has made us special. Specifically, he's told us to rule. Okay? 
That's why humans have rulership and ownership over the earth, okay? We, we put our dogs on leashes. Our dogs don't put us on leashes. At least they should not, okay? And so we have dominion and we have rulership. I think the idea is that when Christ comes back, it's mission accomplished. So I think reigning and ruling with Christ is not that you're ruling over other people, but rather that you're ruling over creation as mankind was, in, was supposed to do. So mankind was supposed to rule over creation. When mankind sins against God, creation rebels. Creation kips, kicks back. There's thorns and thistles now, and there's pain and childbirth and all these things that make it harder for humans to do what we were supposed to do. And so I think the idea is that when the enemy is removed and sin has been uh, done away with, that we uh, rule over creation appropriately. Not that we're ruling over other people, not that we're ruling exactly like Christ. He always is God, stands above us. We are just humans. We will only ever be humans, but that we rule over uh, creation. Any comments you want to make on that? Nope. Okay. I'll just do this by myself. That's a joke. You're nailing it. Uh, okay, so somebody asked this question. Regarding meeting physically, <clears throat> can you clarify the requirement for a physical meeting versus virtual? So, uh, you know, a church group on Facebook or uh, internet church uh, or something like that, i.e., why is it bad to have FaceTime church? You want to give some thoughts on that? Sure. I think uh, the first thing that comes to mind is uh, if you have an online church, who are you submitting to? Who are these uh, mysterious online elders that are somehow been charged with your care and your shepherding and, and praying over you and teaching you and holding you to sound doctrine and these kinds of things. Uh, I mean, I think if you were to do something like that, I'm sure there's some way that you could kind of theoretically overcome it. But at the end of the day, we're talking about uh, what is clearly stated in the Scriptures as being a gathering, an assembling, which is a physical uh, thing. It is not a virtual thing. Um, so, uh, yeah, my, my first issue would be with the idea of uh, submission to elders, who is going to lead, and how does, that, uh, how does that leader, that shepherd, know and give an account for his flock if, he doesn't, if it's just whoever signs on? How does, how does he know who he's responsible for? Yeah, I, I think a helpful thing to remember is there are things that can supplement and help the church but they shouldn't replace the church, okay? So we have to be open as new technologies come available to use those things for God's glory. So for example, let's say that there's a guy in prison and he cannot come to a church service, and so he's able to log on to at least get as much church as he can. Is that fine for him? Sure, he doesn't have another option. But for us, it's really hard to hug somebody who's crying because they just had a miscarriage online, right? Sending them an emoji that's sad does not encourage them or help them. We're commanded to, to gather together. We're commanded to greet one another with a holy kiss. Doesn't mean you literally have to kiss people today. Not one of you kissed me as I walked in, though the Bible commands it four times. The idea is that we greet one another warmly, right? We, we, with a handshake or with a hug or whatever it might be. So I think the idea is it's okay. We don't want to downplay everything that's going on technologically, right? We stream our sermons. And so if someone wants to listen to our sermons, great, but they also need to belong to a local church. How do you take communion by yourself? That's a command. How do you submit to elders when there are no elders to submit to? How do you greet one another with a holy kiss, bear one another's burdens, weep with those who weep, all these other commands if you're not ever around the people? And so, uh, so I, I think keeping that in mind. But making exceptions, there are missionaries in the Middle East where they have no other church, and the only thing they can do is chat with other Christians online, and that's totally fine. But we just don't want to make the exception the rule. We just want to avoid making the exception the, uh, the rule. Uh, okay, next, let me give this, uh, this little one here. This one's good. I'll, I'll give my thoughts and I'll, I'll, I'll kick it to you. What type of responsibility does the local church have to its city slash community 
charities, homeless shelters, uh, types of social work. So let me just clarify something because social justice is a very hot topic, uh, obviously, in our culture. So let me just clarify what the church should think about this. The book of Acts tells us exactly what the church should be doing when it comes to theology and when it comes to caring for people's felt needs. Okay, It's specifically in Acts 6 if you want to read it. Here's what's going on. There are these Hellenistic Jewish widows who are, don't have enough food. They're being overlooked. So the, the church is passing out food, and these Hellenistic Jewish widows, which means they're Jewish, but they're Greek-speaking Jews, they're being overlooked. They're not getting food. And they bring this uh, issue up to the apostles, and here's what the apostles do. Now, this is really important that you understand what they do. They say, we cannot give up doing gospel stuff. We cannot give up preaching the Bible, teaching the Word, and praying for the sake of waiting tables. However, we will elect several men, and this is probably kind of the first formulation of what we would think of today as deacons. We will elect, or the, the congregation will elect these men, and they will help give these women food. So notice what they're doing. They're saying the church has to both A, preach the gospel, and B, provide for people's material needs, but listen, in that order, okay? The primary thing the church does corporately, the primary thing elders do is gospel stuff, preaching Christ, teaching the Bible, discipleship, uh, guarding against false teaching, those kind of things. But we also have people here in the church, both people that are our members and deacons that are involved in helping those in need. So the church has to do both, but it has to do it in that order. What some churches do is they say, we're only going to be about social work, and that lasts for one generation, and then it dies out because there's no foundation. People aren't actually getting saved and knowing Christ. What other churches do is they say, we're just going to preach the gospel, and who cares about the poor? Who cares about social work? That's not okay either, okay? So what the church has to do is we have to do doctrine first, caring for people's needs second. We have to do both, but in that order. So if you are interested and you have a burden for how you can care for people in our society, in our city, go do it. You don't need our permission. You don't need an office. Go volunteer in a homeless shelter. Invite some lady over to your house and have dinner with her. Go for that, okay? Uh, but don't assume that the church is going to stop preaching the gospel to do that. You have to do both. These apostles, it's always interesting to me because people are not getting food, and they say, that's important, but here's what's more important, doctrine, okay? And so you have to do both, preaching the Bible and caring for those uh, in need. And most of that we try to do through our community groups. So all of our community groups have a list of about 10 different organizations in McKinney that they can get involved in to serve if they want to. The homeless shelters, for example, like Samaritan Inn, uh, we have those that help those financially, at places like Gracebridge. We have two or three pregnancy advocacy centers on there to help uh, uh, encourage women not to have uh, abortions who uh, are pregnant and didn't plan it, uh, etc. So the church has to do both, but it has to be, theology has to be given a primacy. Other thoughts? Yeah, I think just to kind of piggyback on what Zach said, the, this, this kind of falls back to the idea that I talked about earlier where we tend to think uh, that the things that the church, church should be doing are things that the elders should be leading us in and that the staff should be making happen. So that are, if there isn't uh, a particular uh, homeless ministry at the church that somehow we're forsaking the homeless, uh, which is false, that is the job of the church, and the church is not the staff and elders, the church is the people. And so that we, uh, one of the things we've tried uh, to inculcate into the life and kind of uh, the kind of focus of Parkway is the idea that we are going to own our walk together, 
that we as believers who gather together are going to acknowledge we collectively have a responsibility to our community. We collectively have a responsibility to uh, the less fortunate and the downtrodden and these kinds of things so that we would, as individual church members, go out into the community to serve and to help and to be a light uh, to the, in the darkness for, for our culture and our community around us, that we don't kind of sit and wait until the church creates a ministry that now I can be a part of, because now I have a platform, now I have an office, now I have a visibility, but instead that we would serve in a way that is humble and gracious and kind and birthed out of conviction for what the Scriptures teach, not uh, because we're waiting for the church to formulate or create some kind of extra parachurch ministry. Does that make sense? Yeah, I'll give one more thought, because that's the last question we have. And now you're thinking, oh, i got to text my question. It's too late. I already said that's the last question. And... Uh, so let me, let me give you one more thought on what Carl said, because I think this is a, a big shift for most of us. Most of us probably either came to faith later in life, or if we grew up in the church, we probably grew up in the church that had 1,000 ministries. Yes, I realize that's 1,000. 1,000 ministries. And for it to be in a ministry, it had to have a title. You had to announce it in the church bulletin. Uh, you had to have maybe a name tag. Uh, you had to have a day and time where you met. And everything had to be done formally, Okay. The problem is when the church has too many ministries that it oversees formally, the elders are then not free to actually make disciples because a, you know, a jack of all trades is a master of none. So here's what we've done kind of at Parkway. At Parkway, we have said the mission of the corporate church is different than the mission of each individual. So think of it as a baseball team. Opening day was this last week, and baseball is everything that's right with the world. And so let's think of it as a baseball team, okay? The goal of the baseball team is to win. The goal is to win as many games as possible. The goal is to win the World Series. Their goal is to win. That is the exclusive goal of the team. But individuals on the team play different positions. Pitchers, especially if you're in the American League, just do pitching. That's all they care about, okay? Designated hitters just love hitting home runs. They're just some big jacked guy that may or may not be on roids, and they are just knocking it out of the park, right? Fielders love catching ground balls if you're a shortstop or if you're a center fielder. They love catching pop flies, jumping against the, uh, the back fence, whatever it might be. Okay? Now, what if the pitcher said, everyone needs to spend all their time on pitching because that's my ministry? Or the designated hitter said, everybody needs to spend all their time in designated hitting because that's my ministry. What they would be doing is they would be exalting their calling over the calling of the team. We need to realize we, we don't want to do that in church. The, the goal of the church is to make disciples of all nations. That and that alone is our goal. We glorify God, make disciples, and do evangelism all with the purpose of making disciples. But that will look different for different people. So we have a guy at our church who does mission trips to Haiti, and it's not an official ministry of Parkway, but we will pray for him, we will encourage him, we'll help put him in touch with people, and he does what God's called him to do. We have other people in the church that started Bible studies at, in their neighborhood or at their place of work. They don't, it's not an official Parkway Bible study. They just start a Bible study, okay? So know that uh, Sundays, it, Sundays are not game day for you. Sundays are game day for the elders and for the staff. That's when we come and we pour out. Sunday for you is a chance to rest. It's a chance to be recharged, to be encouraged. Game day for you is Monday through Saturday. So you don't need a title. You don't need an official affirmation or any of these things to do what God's calling you to do. Just do it. You don't need permission to be a Christian. If you want to help a little old lady across the street mow her lawn, do it. If you want to get involved in a homeless shelter, do it. You want to invite some friends, take some people in your community group or people you know at Parkway and just say, hey, let's go do this. And I think that's when the church uh, is the healthiest, where uh, an individual pitcher or designated hitter is not saying it all has to be about hitting or pitching. The team's job and the individual's job are, uh, are different. So 
You want to pray for us to close us out? Yeah. And then some of y'all can just sit there for 30 minutes if you want, because this is where we'll have service. Okay. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity that we've had to gather this morning and to uh, consider your word together, to consider your church. I uh, pray that you will encourage our hearts as we uh, continue this gathering, as we continue to, to worship you in spirit and in truth, that your name would be made much of, that our hearts would be reminded of your faithfulness to us in the giving of your Son. And we ask for you to help us. Help us to be faithful. We can do no good thing apart from you. Uh, and so we ask for you to be near to us. Help us to see uh, who you are and what you've done correctly, that we might uh, respond with love uh, for you and for your word, and that that would affect how we then love one another and how we love those outside of the body, that we, how we love the local uh, community that we find ourselves in. We want to be faithful, and we cannot do that apart from you. So help us. We need you. We love you. We thank you for your son, and we pray in his name. Amen.